0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 62nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Vicki Odino. I'm with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we'll be discussing current events with a panel consisting of our very own Atlas Society scholars, Dr. Stephen Hicks and Dr. Richard Salzman, And we'll also save time at the end to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, please feel free to type your questions into the Zoom Q&A or the chat. Or if you're watching us live on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, um, feel free to type your questions in the comment stream. Today, we're going to cover three topics. What's going on in Cuba, billionaires in space, as well as Biden's anti big business competition order. So thanks for joining us and let's go ahead and get started with our first topic. Within the last couple of weeks, Cubans protested in the first anti-government demonstration that's occurred in decades. There There were reports of Cuban security forces beating and tear gassing protesters before Cuba shut down the internet. Cuban immigrants in Florida staged their own protests in support, but politicians in the United States have struggled with how to respond initially blaming the protests on COVID and eventually, and apparently reluctantly, acknowledging the communist government for the unrest. So Stephen, I'm gonna start with you. What, are you. what are your thoughts on what we're seeing going on in Cuba?
1: Well, uh, I'm encouraged uh, overall by what we're seeing. Obviously, Cuba has been a, a disaster for over half a century and now, uh, essentially my, my lifetime. And you feel sorry for Cuba and, you know, can anything possibly happen so that there is a sign of life and a significant life, uh, those mass protests process are, 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 are heartening. Uh, I'm not sure how much is going to come of it. Uh, and this is a lot of crystal ball gazing that we, we would have to do. But I just have right now five uh, somewhat random observations to make about it. Uh, partly this is driven by right now I'm actually in South Dakota at the uh, the big Freedom Fest uh, speaking for, for Atlas Society here on the theme of democratic socialism. So I've got a, a couple of democratic socialist uh, uh, tidbits to, to put against what's obviously a very authoritarian form of socialism now uh, inspired originally by a, a Marxist violent form of socialism that's been, been highly, highly repressed. So let me share my screen and... So my first tidbit has to do with uh, this guy. Uh, can you see uh, Batista, picture of Batista? Okay, good. So uh, one of the striking things, I only learned this quite recently is obviously Batista is a bad guy, strong arm, uh, very corrupt through a bunch of the 1950s. And the popular story that we, we learned is that uh, Fidel and uh, the gang were idealistic young communists rising up against this CIA-backed uh, uh, right-wing puppet, Batista, and overthrew him, and that's a lot of the more moral fervor of, 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 the, of the revolution. But what's not known uh, very much is, uh, this is a picture of Batista in 1938. He comes from a military background, but a very politically connected guy, and uh, he was democratically elected in 1939. And the party that he was uh, the head of was the Democratic Socialist Party. So he was elected as a Democratic Socialist. And the difference then uh, is here you have someone who comes to power on a Democratic Socialist power uh, then some years later, replaced by someone coming to power on a more violent socialist or authoritarian socialist socialist party. And it's interesting that this was a coalition party that was put together in the late 1930s, including uh, you know what we now call uh, uh, democratic socialists or social democrats, uh, some more nationalistic collectivists. But also uh, part of the coalition was the, uh, the Cuban Communist Party. They outright supported... This coalition has supported Batista and so forth. So this is an interesting bit of history that often gets swept under the carpet, obviously, for ideological reasons and political reasons. And then then there's an important, uh, interesting follow-up issue was, was Batista really opportunistic in his heart of hearts and merely mouthing some democratic socialist things in order to come to power uh, or was he in his heart of hearts a democratic socialist but then once he got into power he became corrupted and so on so those are interesting questions but it is the case that when you look at cuba's history ideologically politically ideologically it's all thoroughly collectivistic as far back as i have been able to to look and really the 20th century uh most of the 20th century. Rather, it's been either some sort or a kind of dictatorship that explicitly came out of Marxist socialism. And uh, what that means for the future of Cuba is, uh, I don't think it's anything anything good. Another uh, democratic socialist uh, tidbit, this is uh, one uh, the, the talk I just gave a little while ago on democratic socialism in the United States. So I spend a certain amount of time on socialist social media Uh, And so this is the uh, the Twitter feed of the Democratic Socialists of America. And uh, they, uh, you know, as a follower, tweeted something about Cuba. What's very interesting here is, of course, the Democratic Socialists will bill themselves as we, we, we don't believe in Marxist socialism. We don't believe in a violent revolution and all of that terrible dictatorial stuff and all the lessons of the 20th century are irrelevant to our true socialism, which is going to be a democratic socialism. So it was very striking to see that in this case here, uh, what they're, they're tweeting is support for the regime in Cuba right now. So you've got real people, real workers, real students, real ordinary people rising up protesting uh, protesting in the streets and the so-called democratic socialists in in America are not on their side they're on the side of the uh, the dictatorial regime that's currently in in power so they're saying here the democratic socialists uh, alliance stands with the cuban people and their revolution and the revolution means fidel castro che guevara that's the revolution that's what they are supporting and so they are against the people protesting on the street. And I think, again, that speaks to uh, 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 what's actually going on in the minds of many people who disingenuously call themselves democratic socialists. My next uh, uh, item here is uh, this was one that was really cognitively dissonant uh, with respect to me. So uh, the current uh, Department of Homeland Security head, Biden appointee, is this fellow, Mayorkas. Uh, getting up uh, as the head of, uh, of uh, uh, Homeland Security, saying to Cubans who are trying to, in some cases, get out of Cuba, come to the land of freedom or what, uh, what we'd like to think of as the land of freedom, for freedom, for opportunity and so on, saying explicitly to them, don't come to America, right? Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, blah, 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 do not attempt to enter the United States. So it's a very strong, you are not welcome here, and then part of the cognitive dissonance is that uh, Mayorkas himself was, as a young boy, brought to the United States by Cuban immigrants fleeing communist repression in uh, in Cuba. So uh, even his own personal biography is not strong enough. Now, of course, he might be, uh, even though he's the head of the Department of Homeland Security, he still might just be a mouthpiece for policy formed at a higher level. But nonetheless, uh, this does seem to be current American policy. Also, uh, just to uh, to broaden the point a little bit about uh, this kind of reaction from the U.S. government administration and the very tepid reaction to freedom fighters in Hong Kong that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years, Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, the the, uh, anti-Mexican and more broadly Central American people trying to come up Uh, to to make a new life for themselves in the United States. So it does seem that we uh, have lots of indicators pointing in the direction that uh, US political policy on both parties is shifting away from being immigrant friendly, land of the free, send us your poor huddled masses. You know, we don't want Mexicans, we don't want Central Americans, we don't want Hong Kongers, we don't want Cubans. These are just three data points, but it uh, they all are pointing in the same direction that to me is a little disturbing. One, one final thought I have uh, is, <clears throat> let me stop the screen sharing here, is uh, again, I don't know how this is going to play out. But, uh, you know, either there could be significant changes or it could fail. But there is a, a, you know, a serious question, even if it succeeds, about uh, what our goals can and should be for Cuba, given that for pretty much close to a century now, they have no cultural history or cultural ethos of freedom, of entrepreneurship, of, uh, of responsible self-government. All of that's been destroyed for many generations now. So uh, my sense is that we have a a kind of an inchoate dissatisfaction with whatever's going on right now, and I hope uh, that it goes well. I hope the current regime is ousted and or replaced, but my my sense is that the best we can hope for, even with support from uh, the rest of the world, is uh, that Cuba becomes kind of another just weakly or badly gunned Caribbean nation. So I'll stop on that point for now.
0: Uh, Before I go to Richard, can I just ask you a quick question, Stephen? Sure. What do you make of um, the difference in policy of um, what's going on in Texas regarding illegal immigrants coming over? And then this statement about Cubans absolutely do not come over.
1: Yeah, well, the ones from uh, Texas are uh, more coming from conservatives. And this one is obviously coming from a not conservative source. Uh, And I think that's uh, uh, somewhat irrelevant. There's a kind of economic nationalism uh, that's I think at work in in both places. And it's something that's uh, now shared by both so-called conservatives and so-called conservatives. It's cutting across uh, the party lines.
0: Thanks. Richard, do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: I do. I have some thoughts on Cuba. My first thought is I'm always, of course, uh, eager to see people who are oppressed uh, revolting against their government. What seems to be lacking in Cuba, and I'm no expert, but if you know history, you know there has to be some kind of leader or group of leaders with some uh, consistent message. It can't just be a bunch of disgruntled people in the streets. So um, to the extent that hasn't happened yet, this is probably not uh sustainable the other thing I, I think is worth noting is how quickly and easily the cuban government shut down the internet now, having just heard this past week uh, jen Psaki and others in the biden administration talking you know kind of cavalierly about how they just call up internet service providers and tell them what to do and tell them what to uh class as misinformation and you know openly talking about working with facebook i wonder if anyone wants to make that connection that authoritarian regimes have their finger or wish to have their finger on the internet. And that's important because if the Cuban uh, revolters can't get their message out um, over the internet or over the phone service, that's a a problem. But similar things are happening in the US, not the complete shutdown of the internet, but the control of it by the US government. Uh, You mentioned the DSA's uh, comments on this. It, It should be important to note that, it is important, I think, to note that BLM came out against the protesters as well. So BLM, a uh, well-known Marxist-inspired organization, uh, not surprisingly came out on behalf of the Cuban dictators. I don't know if that's not widely reported, but it's it's out there, and um, they issued statements all about this. Now, by the way, another key figure in recent controversies, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who started the 1619 project from New York Times that kind of discredited lying an account of the source of racism and slavery in America. She was actually found to have been interviewed by Ezra Klein a couple of years ago, and he asked her if there was any kind of country she might point to. This isn't recent. This is a couple of years ago, but still, she was already famous for the 1619 Project. And Ezra Klein asked her, um, I think it's Axios, what country might you point to which has the kind of equity achievements you're looking for in the United States, namely equal results or close to equal results between blacks and whites? And she said, Cuba, that's her role model. Nicole Hannah-Jones, her role model is Cuba because as she put it, the differences economically and socially between blacks and whites in Cuba is minimal. Well, that's true because they're both equally impoverished both equally impressed just shows you the kind of priorities people like that have there.
1: I could jump in, Richard, uh, just on that uh, point about the the founder of the 1619 Project, back when she was a reporter journalist for the Oregonian, I think it was, uh, a a, a newspaper out in the West. She, uh, this is uh, brought to my attention by uh, uh, economic historian, Phil Magnus, who does yeoman work on on the 1619 Project. Yeah. yeah, that she wrote a long uh, encomium to Cuba and how yeah. wonderful things were, and yeah, uh, on on the basis of a, a firsthand journalistic trip to the right. to the nation. So, you know, in the best tradition of fellow travelers going to the Soviet Union, yeah, you know, back in the right. '30s and uh, talking yeah. about how wonderful everything was under Joseph Stalin. Uh, she's doing the exact same thing with respect to Fidel.
2: Yes, so very I, good. That's my um, two uh, cents. I, I and I saw that too. And I thought that was way earlier, actually, than the Ezra Klein interview. Yeah. So it's on paper, it's on documents and, and in verbal and stuff. The, the view is pretty obvious. I want to say something else about AOC, too, and, and what was referred to as the blockade in the DSA tweet. Did you see that? And the blockade. Yes. What, what they're referring to is the embargo. And that's maybe more of an economic question. I just wanted to address it. Because AOC said this. AOC said, well, beyond saying they're in the streets because they want their COVID shots, that's just nonsense. So that was one excuse. Another excuse was their, uh, the embargo is the thing that's making their lives miserable. Now, just quick, very quickly here in 1961, only two years after uh, Castro took over, the Kennedy administration imposed an embargo on Cuba. Now, we know there was a Cuban missile crisis the following year, but that embargo, basically blocking any trade between the U.S. and Cuba, was pretty much maintained until Obama. So Obama lifted it, um, I think, halfway through his terms. Not not important, because he went down there and glad-handed with the Castros and lifted that, and then Trump reimposed it. Now, the reason I want to mention this is that is just not an explanation for why Cuba is impoverished and repressed. Uh, the, the first point to make is Cuba can trade with anybody else in the world it wants. It can trade with China, it can trade with Venezuela, it can trade with anyone. So that, that it cannot be, that is more of a blame America first approach. And and But by the way, there are some uh, libertarians as well who would make this critique. There are libertarians who believe that if the embargo were lifted and they've been arguing this for decades, then, then then Cuba would become freer because they're trading with us. But anyway, I just wanted to set that aside. So in case anyone's hearing the argument about, well, the reason the problems are going on in Cuba is they have this embargo. Uh, no, that's not it.
1: Um, Can I uh, jump in just a little sure, bit yes. on that too? Yeah. yeah. Another good example is uh, Taiwan in the shadow of China. Right. So. Uh, you know, sometimes they have more trade. Sometimes they have less trade. But the point there is, Taiwan is extraordinarily wealthy by 21st century standards, and uh, even a country under the shadow of a huge, unfriendly country that sometimes puts trade restrictions and blockades in pace. That's the issue. Right. What are your internal policies, not right, exactly. not your big bad neighbors?
2: Exactly couple more things uh, I, I I did not know that about Batista the the stuff you brought up there was really fascinating now the first thing I thought of Stephen was what was the 1930s but a real push globally for fascist <laughs> fascistic regimes oh yeah, yeah. the democratically elected fascistic regimes right like the Nazis and so the fact that this was going on as well in the Caribbean and in the South America is, is, is interesting and fascinating to me because you are. Wouldn't it be true, Stephen, if you asked someone from the DSA today, you get give me your two prior leaders of Cuba, Batista and Castro. Which one was democratically elected? It wasn't Castro. Yeah. yeah. So, but they endorsed Castro, but not Batista. So um, anyway, I just want to bring that up. Last thing I'll say is the Mayorkas quote is interesting also, because if you look at the reason he gives for not coming. He says, do not risk your life. So no, notice the attitude. They're, they're not risking their life, apparently, being in Cuba. Mm. or They're not risking their life being in Venezuela. No, they're risking their life trying to escape those places. Now, of course, these are risky moves, but that's also happening uh, south of the border in Texas, right? Really risky uh, actions to get into the US, and you do not have the administration standing up and telling people from Mexico, Guatemala, and elsewhere, do not come here because you're risking your life. That's their choice to make, right? And their view is we'd rather risk it. So those are just um, some of my comments. I, I actually heard the other day and looked into it. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. This is also interesting that Cuba is going on. Apparently, a large contingent of secret police from Cuba and part of the military is actually running Venezuela. Oh yeah. So when um, Maduro purged some of his military guys, he was worried about the precariousness of his hold in that ter- terrible place. And the Cubans sent over assistance. So the assistance they sent over to Venezuela as they had some of their own military guys helping mm. Venezuela. So, one more
1: thing I'd like to just add on the uh, on the embargo point. This is one that's just very shake my head, irritating uh, to me about uh, socialists and apologists for for Cuba on this, because on the issue of trade, the en- entire socialist argument for all of Latin America and basically the whole rest of the world is that capitalist trade is a bad thing. Yes. And yeah. the reason why in all of these poor nations were so poor is that the capitalists are right. investing right. And exploiting us and oppressing right. us and we don't have a chance to get rich because all the damn capitalists are exactly. are, are it but then of course then they just uh, immediately do a 180 and say oh it's kind of the lack of trade with with the capitalists and uh, and, and we're not allowed to trade with them and that's right. why they're poor so right. yeah, it might be an intelligence issue uh for some socialists but a lot of them you know they're just going to use any argument they can and, and it's it's excuse making
2: yeah and this isn't even an issue of aid you're right and and if if by their own doctrines the capitalist is the parasite and everyone else is the host yeah. what, are they, what are they whining and complaining about that they've lost the host which is the united states that means they need us more than we need them yeah yeah so the logic then seems to be uh know come down and oppress and exploit
1: us <laughs> of course, they won't use that language.
2: Right? Another way of looking at this would be, "Hey, dear Democrats, explain to us why Obama's lifting of the embargo did not liberate Cuba." Sure. Yeah. I mean, why are they complaining literally three or four years later? It can't really be because Trump reimposed it. Where was the loosening? Where was the where was the advancement being made when uh, Obama did uh, what he did? Um, yeah, that's all I have on Cuba i mean again i hope i assume you do steve and I, I mean i hope something happens but it's more um anarchical down there than anything i mean among the re- revolters not the oppressors uh,
1: yeah i think it's i think it's in a, inchoate um, you know, in my my heart of hearts i think what obama did was the right decision i don't have full information on that but i do like the business brings reform thesis you know the, uh-huh. the extent that there are windows open yeah. Uh, then it becomes easier for uh, people to get out of there if they want to, more easy for aid to flow in, more exposure to healthier governance models from outside the world. So, um, uh, so you know, thumbs up to Obama on that, uh, that baby step, at least. Good.
0: I really appreciate that. Thank you. What a great informational Discussion. I really appreciate that. And remember, if anybody has any questions on um, Cuba for Stephen or Richard, please type those in. We'll get to those at the end, but I wanna move on to the next topic. And for the next topic, we want to acknowledge billionaires in space. Earlier, Richard Branson was the first and then only days later, Jeff Jeff Bezos became the second private citizen to successfully launch their rockets to space, bringing them one step closer to commercial space travel. While some celebrate this incredible feat, others are not so complimentary. So Richard, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on this huge achievement?
2: Yeah, I don't have a lot on this, but two or three points. One, I think it's a very nice, wonderful, encouraging uplifting development i mean the three really involved in this are elon musk who has spacex as well as tesla and bezos uh what is it called blue horizon i think and then um, um who am i missing oh branson of course i watched the branson performance uh two straight hours it was very uplifting it was very uh inspiring now, I, I, this is part of a trend, as you know, of what might be called the privatization, and uh, you know, commercialization of space. And that's a good sign as well. It shouldn't be uh, run by the government. I, I don't mind the government through NASA being somewhat involved, but um, when they started defunding uh, NASA and losing kind of ideas after the shuttle was shut down, um, they, to their credit, Um, NASA did start working with private sector to do this. Now, these guys are so creative and so iconoclastic. You can see why they would be ones who would want to be pushing it. But I also like the fact that all three of them basically have other businesses. It's not like this is a dilettante type thing. It's not like this is just like vacationing. They've all Mm -hmm. built other businesses. So they're substantial people. We can we can uh, dispute a little bit whether there's subsidies helping some of them, we can dispute some of their politics, but I don't think that's relevant to this case. So now on the negative side, not my negative side, but to hear some of the commentary, uh, it, was, it was somewhat disturbing to see the kind of standard thing you would get. Uh, uh, these are just billionaires with their playthings these are just billionaires like going up into space. Uh, some, some would say they didn't really accomplish anything because they didn't really pierce the whatever 52 mile outer limit, which is required to you know formally be space. This kind of nitpicking of these guys and this kind of envy and resentment is very telling. But if you're old enough to remember what happened during the Apollo program and the uh, moonwalk, similar things happened. These they're on the one hand, uh, wonderful achievements. On the other hand, people complaining about, well, that money should be spent, you know, to, to clear the slums and things like that. Well, I think these guys should be applauded. And um, and I hope they inspire other things. I myself am not entirely sure what the economic value is. Uh, I know that Elon Musk is really dr- revolutionizing, the, revolutionizing the idea of how satellites should be put up so when the government did it, they would put satellites way up into space and they would have bigger, more expensive ones that were hard to maintain and sometimes would crash to the ground. Elon has come up with an idea of a lower orbit and many, many more satellites, which will make, um, and uh, they're much more affordable, easier to fix. And so he's doing some fascinating things as well. Overall, I give this like an A plus, what a great story and what a, re- what a revelation of the, the nitpickers and the resentful ones, they'll always be there. And they just reveal themselves when they start criticizing this. I don't know what you think, Stephen, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I, uh, let me uh, do a share thing here again. I wanted to show a couple of pictures. Now I second entirely the uh, Richard's remarks about the inspirational nature of this. It really is a, an amazing technological achievement. But the thing I, 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 I like the most about it is the idea of the American dream or not also the British dream, but it really should be the, the, the global dream for any kid that you can yeah. Yeah, be inspired. And all three of these guys, it's the same story. You know, they were eight year old kids looking up yeah. at the sky yeah. and saying, you know, their dads or their moms or someone pointed out, you know, that's that's Mars. Right. And that's uh, And they get inspired and they say, wow, I want I want to go there. And then they are very creative. They make a lot of money, and then they uh, they start these businesses and they make their their space dream happen. That's incredibly inspiring. And I hope uh, you know there's now about two billion uh, people under the age of sixteen, I think, around the world. That a significant number of them are inspired so that they they can they, they can make their dreams. You know, it's a it's an outstanding example. Now I know I spend more time than is healthy for me at. Uh, socialist websites part of my my research <laughs> and so forth so the uh, the nitpickers uh there are a few of those but there are some uh, darker currents that i are, are a little more prominent i mean i can uh, you'll remember when uh, apollo 11 went to the moon uh it's actually the, the same month that my my uh, my little brother was born so it's very strong in my memory and not huge space exploration guy, but I can remember how thrilling and exciting it was. So the idea of, uh, of nitpicking, but in, then even more strongly. So this uh, editorial or political cartoon caught my eye. Can you see this? Yes. On the screen? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is just very clear, you know, capturing this uh, anti-entrepreneurial, anti-pursue-your-dream ethos. The idea that as long as there are people anywhere in the world and we're supposed to be thinking of the entire world as our family and we all have obligations to our family so if you have a little bit more money first you should uh, give that money to anybody's need anywhere out in the world and otherwise you're just an immoral bad person so you know, in some sense they're uh, you know they're throwing money that's going to get blown up but they've despoiled the the environment Totally, in order to get it, and there's their brothers and sisters and the rest of the animal species, you know, within plain sight, in view, and how callous and cold-hearted they are to be to be doing. So this is a huge part of the the mindset that we are up against. Uh, we celebrate entrepreneurship; they don't have that model at all. Wealth creation, dream pursuing, is a very much uh, communal. Uh, despairing for anybody who uh, uh, has a problem anywhere in the world in the sense that one really should set aside one's dreams in order to cater to anybody of anybody's needs so i don't even think it's a it's a it's a benevolence uh, or a misplaced benevolence there's a real malevolence here i think uh, they're using the poor people and then the people who are in a in difficult situation is a way of tacking people who have actually gone out and accomplished something with respect to their dreams. And I'm not gonna show any of these pictures, but I think one step further down the rung of uh, immorality is large number of cartoons and wishful thinking, uh, you know, that they, they hope their rockets explode uh, once they get up into, into space. wouldn't that be good? Uh, uh, and so in effect, explicitly wishing for the death of uh, these people. Uh, There's a lot of sickness that's out there. Now, I'm mentioning this not to to dwell on it. This really is an awesome achievement. I think majority of people in the world have the healthier response to it, but I do think we have more envy, more resentment, more uh, politicized collectivism out there in the demographics now than we did a generation ago. So it's a a real moral fight that we have on, on our hands. And of course, Uh, Objectivism is all about that moral fight.
2: This may seem completely disconnected, but I think I find a parallel of the resentment toward these guys, Stephen, and Trump. And it goes like this. Trump uh, was independently wealthy. He financed his own campaign. He didn't have to get contributions from anybody. Therefore, he could throw off the cronyist argument, right? Which is totally surrounding I know right? the corruption of Biden and all the money that's been given to him. And, and, and so I think there's a resentment similar to what's being held against these three uh, space guys, namely, wow, it's really terrible that they have so much wealth, they can do whatever they want, mm. including run for president and not mm. have to go through the system, not have to go through NASA, not have to go through the DNC or the RNC, you know, mm. and whatever is causing that, and we, that's a whole different discussion the left would call it plutocracy rule by the wealthy, right? And now here rule of space by the wealthy. And I actually, I actually heard someone said that Trump is in on this because he created the space force, that sixth element of the British, of the, mm-hmm. of the military to, to pave the way for these three guys, these three guys. So as far as I know, don't even like Trump, but um, that, that idea of, you know, wealth, uh, carving out a space of independence for things you can do, I think is, is resented as well. I just wanted to say, by the way, the whole history of capitalism in terms of play things for rich people, I'm glad we have that because that right, right. Sure. is the story of almost every product of any consequence that's ever been delivered, especially on this consumer side. So whether it was cars or cell phones or, whatever any kind of uh, technological event which in the beginning was very expensive and affordable only to the wealthy well they had the money to try it and first triers and first users you know often you know face danger in trying new things electricity and other things uh, but they paved the way for others to follow i don't i don't want to use that as a kind of social utility justification for for yeah. it but it's just a fact of what happens and then once once these kind of trial balloons go out and people say, yeah, I'd like to do that too. I'd like to buy a seat on the next trip that Bezos makes, they start pricing it and they start finding ways to make it affordable and mass produce it. I don't know if that'll happen here, but that's another thing to keep in mind, all the great products we have of any technological, started out very expensive and the playthings, the toys of, of the wealthy.
1: Yeah. And just to, to generalize on that point, uh, the same thing is true of all great artistic achievements and many major scientific achievements. It's people. This is just cool. This is interesting to me. I have no idea yeah. Yeah. what it's going to have down the road. And uh, those are the people. The people we want. But to, to speak to your your earlier point, uh, I'm not a, at all a Trump fan, but I can see the point that you're making that he is symbolically at least an iconoclast outside the mainstream doing his own thing as are all of these gentlemen and you can see that from certain political culture that's just 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 not what they want they don't want the iconoclast you you will be assimilated to the system right
2: Right. that's what we want right well done
0: well one of my favorite you showed that cartoon and one of my favorite cartoons from this is, have you seen that picture of the Wright brothers, the first flight?
1: Mm. Um, oh yeah.
0: And overlaid on that are a couple of people in the corner and it says, typical narcissistic rich guys, which I was
1: <laughs> I haven't seen that one, I would like to though. Yeah, that's,
0: I'll send it to you. Perfect. Um, also a real quick question here regarding the cartoon from David Kelly, who actually will be joining us for the panel for next month on August 18th.
1: Should I share a screen again so we can look at it?
0: Um, you know what, I don't, I've got it on my phone. So I'll, I'll th- that. oh, you mean your cartoon? Yeah, why don't yep. you go ahead and do that.
1: Okay, there's the cartoon.
0: Yeah, so David is asking, oh, well now I can't see what David asked. But basically he was asking um, whether the point of this is that, Oh, I can't see the question now. Can you unshare the screen for a second? Sure can. (laughs) And let me ask the question, then you can show it again. Um, In the cartoon you showed was the point not only that the money spent on space could have gone to help the starving people, but also the money spent on space came at the expense of those people making them impoverished.
1: No, that's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So the, all of the, the the entire environment has been despoiled. All of the people are are basically naked. They don't have the anything available to them. So yeah, that clearly is an implication. They are just takers and uh, uh, and despoilers and exploiters. So uh, exactly right.
2: You know, I might I'm, I, I'm a, if I could. I'm sorry, Vicky. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh no. go Um, Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll pass. I thought you were going to ask something else.
0: Any last comments on any last comments on um, the billionaires in space, the those narcissistic rich guys before we move on? Are we good to move on? And if anybody else has any questions, again, you know, throw them in the chat, type them up in your comments section, and we'll get to those um, at the end. But I did wanna move on to our last topic, uh, which I'm actually going to start with Richard on, and it has to do with the executive order President Biden signed on July 9th that, I looked it up and it's officially titled, The Executive Order on Promoting Competition in the American Economy. So maybe Richard, you can tell us a little bit about that and what your concerns are.
2: Okay, this is a very disturbing development it, but just as context and background, it, when presidents issue executive orders, they're, they're perfectly okay, they're perfectly legitimate per the Constitution There's a sort of prerogative that the executive branch has for managing the executive branch. But what I've noticed, and I have studied this in the past, uh, collected all the executive orders, what are they about, what kind of power do they have, why do presidents come in later and re- and rescind the ones that prior ones were doing. So that's happening a lot. If you remember when Biden just, when got in, like remember the first day, there were just like piles of executive orders on his desk. He was just signing one after another. So just visually, you see this kind of thing going on now. That's what they spend the first week doing. And so it sounds dictatorial. It sounds like decrees are being issued, right? And in a way, that's exactly what they are. they called EOs, they're called executive orders. But the pattern I've seen is EOs used to be, and I'll call them EOs, sorry about that, Washington talk. EOs used to be rare, brief, and procedural. Uh, they were issued you know, to get something done in the executive branch, some bottleneck somewhere. Um, and so they weren't all that substantial. Nobody could name them, nobody could remember them. But over the last decade or so, starting with Obama, actually, they've become uh, not rare, but frequent. Um, and not brief, but long, and not just procedural, but substantial. And remember Obama was famous for saying, well, if the Congress isn't gonna pass what I want, I do have a pen and a phone. What did he mean by that? I'll just write an executive order. And now it's verging on legislation in the sense of passing rules and passing mandates um, that aren't strictly procedural. Well, I, get, I say all that because I have never seen an executive order that is so egregious in those regards than this one. Uh, Even any prior ones Biden issued, and he has issued a lot in six months. This one, it's not just the page numbers, but just so you know, this one is 16 pages long. I mean, they're typically a page or two pages. This is 16 pages long. It refers to 17 different government agencies that must do this and that, according to the Biden administration. It particularly targets what they call big tech, big pharma, and big ag. Big ag means big agriculture. So they're targeting large tech companies, large pharma companies, and ag. They claim they're trying to uh, uh, they claim they're trying to control price inflation. Well, the price inflation, of course, is being caused by the Federal Reserve and, uh, and the Treasury. <laughs> And so that alone is disturbing, that the idea that they think inflation's to be fought by imposing what amounts to price controls or trust busting on these groups. I've never heard a breakup of big ag before that has to do with the food supply. You might wanna worry about that if you know anything about what Venezuela has done to its food supply. So I I read this thing cover to cover so you didn't have to. And I can only tell you that basically what it does is turbocharge the antitrust laws. Now, again, a little context. For objectivists, the antitrust laws are the devil. The antitrust laws themselves, even when not fully enforced, are such a hash of arbitrary and contradictory dictum that really the question over the last uh, 130 years, since they were first adopted in 1890, was an issue of how uh, much they'd be enforced because if these laws were fully enforced, every business would be shut down. That's how much power the antitrust agencies have. So then it becomes an issue of selective enforcement, which is another example of arbitrary law, which is non-objective law. And what we saw, I would say, starting with the Reagan years was lax enforcement on the grounds that the antitrust laws were being used by disgruntled loser competitors, that there wasn't really any harm being shown to anyone but laggard competitors. So the Reagan administration, unfortunately, they didn't drop any of the laws. They didn't amend and get rid of any of the laws. They just told the Justice Department, where the antitrust group is, to uh, not enforce them so strongly on certain grounds. Biden is reacting against all that. In the, in the executive order, he says, not just I'm reversing what Trump did, he says, I'm reversing 30 years of lack of enforcement of antitrust laws. And he, he names a very interesting but fundamentally uh, collectivist standard just to show how far he's going. When the conservatives and Reagan and, and Robert Bork and others in the 1970s and 80s criticized the antitrust laws, They didn't criticize them on the grounds Ayn Rand would, namely they violated individual rights. They criticized them on the grounds that they were no longer being enforced in a way that helps consumers, consumer welfare. So they had what they call a consumer welfare standard. Namely, if you can't prove that certain competitive behavior is actually harming consumers in the sense of higher prices or lower cost goods, or lower choice, then we're not going to indulge. We're not going to allow the trust to go in. Um, the, the the latest controversy is the Biden people have dropped that. They, they claim they're working for the consumer, but they think even that is too much of a selfish standard. So this is how far away we're getting from the objective view of this. Antitrust laws are bad enough. What you have here is an executive branch willing to just take the reins of antitrust and run them all through every possible agency of government and go after any business they want for any reason. It's the closest thing, by the way, I've ever seen to that famous Directive 10.289 in Atlas Shrugged, except for the universal price controls. I remember part of Directive 289 10.289 was, um, was the idea that the economy was out of control and we had to freeze everything. This one I think is more of a, a power grab that would permit the administration to go after any sector in any company in any industry it wants and in a, in a very arbitrary way. Now, I just wanna bring up a couple of things um, counter to this or just giving different color to it. If you heard, imagine what you would think if the president got up and the executive order was named executive order on promoting competition in American sports, not the American economy, right? The first thing you'd say is, what what are they talking about? There's competition in sports. This competition is going on all the time. Millions of dollars are being made. There's people in the stands who call themselves fans, which means they're fanatically loving this. And why is there not a competitive problem in competitive sports. And when you think about it, it's because there are already rules of the road. They're objective and understandable. Everybody knows the rules of baseball, football, basketball, hockey. They're basically run as private leagues. They're not really government run. And they're based entirely on meritocracy. You know, may the best man or the best the girl, the best team win. And so there's competition and nobody complains about it. And I think this is an indication of how wrong this is, that the problems that Biden is identifying, which are actually real problems, say a lack of innovation, he said at one point, although that's not entirely clear, higher prices, uh, a a less mobile workforce, um, those things are all due to government interventions, they're not due to capitalism. There is one good thing, by the way, I should say, there is one good thing in all these 16 pages, and I've been harping on this for a while, on occupational licensing increasingly i think it's something like a third of the jobs out there now you need to go to the government and get a license permission in effect and and it's not just it's not just administrative like that sometimes you have to go take courses you have to spend money you have to spend time away from work and it's a real barrier to entry and he does say in here that they'll that he's asking certain government agencies to loosen or lower the occupational licensing um, standards. And that's a good thing. Um, He only says certain, so I don't know how sweeping it'll be, but um, let me just finish with, I know we're running out of time, just a little flavor of how he talks about this. Um, This is from his press conference where he's introducing the executive order. So Biden says, quote, think of this and think if you agree on this, quote, the heart of American capitalism is a simple idea open and fair competition, where companies that want your business have to go out and offer better prices, services, new ideas, new product. Competition keeps the economy moving and growing. Fair competition, notice that suggests there's unfair competition somewhere, is why capitalism has been the world's greatest force for prosperity and growth. Then he says, I'm a proud capitalist. I know America can't succeed unless business succeeds, but capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. Instead of companies competing for consumers, we now have companies consuming competitors, unquote. Very clever, very clever wording there. I have to give credit to the, the speech writers there, but a couple of things, fair competition, what does that mean? Versus unfair competition, we should be stressing free, and open trade. And that is really the essence of why America has become wealthy and, and why it became wealthier when the antitrust laws didn't exist. So um, this is an important point. It's made by by the way a lot and trenchantly by Ayn Rand in her essay, um, America's Persecuted Minority, Big Business. There's a whole section in there you might wanna read two or three really good pages on the meaning of competition and why it's not an essential feature of capitalism but rather a byproduct of it and so to put this as a primary or as economists do to teach in econ 101 this model of pure and perfect competition where basically you set up this bizarre kind of platonic world where no one can really win competitions they're 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 modeled in such a way that if they have any quote unquote market power if they have any power to to set their prices, or even advertise. Advertising is considered a market imperfection by this model. That is what's driving this kind of egalitarian approach that that everyone starts the same and ends the same. That's what the perfect competition model actually demands. Um, Mm -hmm. That's driving this a lot. And and now also the hyperbolic discussion of capitalism without competition. I mean, the idea that the American economy has no competition is just laughable, it's bizarre. And it's, it's perfectly easy, of course, for the government on its own without calling up any business to get rid of its own monopoly in schools. It monopolizes the school system. There's no competition or not enough of it in the schools. Why isn't it doing something about that? It's actually shutting down school choice. Same thing with health insurance, the government blocks mm-hmm. buying of health insurance, first-class is an obvious one, pensions. I would go so far as to say money and banking, but that's even more radical. Um uh, Biden, despite the language, and I'm not sure why he feels the need to use the language, I'm a capitalist, um, is really not a capitalist. And I'll just leave you with this last quote. A year ago, literally, I don't know if he picked the date, but on July 9th, 2020, not July 9th, 2021, he said this, quote, it's way past time we put an end to the era of shareholder capitalism. The idea that the only responsibility a corporation has is with its shareholders. That's simply not true. It's an absolute farce. They have responsibility to their workers, their community, their country. It's not a new or radical notion. These are basic values and principles that help build the nation in the first place, unquote. So he's in this tradition of stakeholder, not shareholder. Capitalism, and I, my view has been that shareholder capitalism is a redundancy. That's the only real capitalism there is. And stakeholder, stakeholder capitalism is a oxymoron. And I think the reason, to, way to untangle this is the reason he's saying I'm a capitalist and, and Liz Warren has done the same thing. Senator Warren, she has said the same thing. Their view is as long as they don't advocate public ownership of the means of production, the typical socialist definition, then they're capitalists. But actually what they're advocating is private ownership and government control, private ownership of the means of production. They're not going to nationalize anything, but this kind of directive is basically nationalizing ubiquitously the decision-making of business, which is the fascistic model, to be fair, not to, to get hyperbolic about it, but that combination is what fascism is. Capitalism is private ownership and private control, Socialism is public ownership and public control. Fascism is this hybrid. And, and that's what this order uh, represents. How, how far it will be applied, I, I'm not sure. But it's really ominous. And um, I'll leave it at that.
1: A couple of quick points. So uh, I do want to have some time for questions as well. Uh, so i got to sketch the last uh, 30 years. It strikes me that we're at a cultural tipping point, that some trends are 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 becoming normalized. So, if you go back to the 1990s, for example, the official ideological policy of the United States was the so-called Third Way, when uh, Bill Clinton became president. The exact same movement in Great Britain under uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair. So the idea was. You know, we've had this uh, Reaganomics and supply side stuff, and everything has gone too far down the capitalist road. Yeah. At the same time, this is the early 90s, we've seen the failure of socialism and we don't want to have authoritarian socialism. So we are announcing. and it was you know big fanfare yeah. marketing, public relations, Madison Avenue, the yeah. third way.
0: Yeah. And it's
1: explicitly going to be private ownership working hand in hand with government right. management. And uh, we're all brothers and sisters under the skin. We're all going to be harmoniously managing and operating the economy together, government and business as equal partners in this, uh, this great adventure of the American economy. Now, how much of that was uh, you know, genuine, how much uh, cover story and so on. But that's no longer the official ideology. And what has happened is you know, just a potted history here is uh, you know, bailouts, uh, you know, the, the stream of bailouts that used to be unusual, Extreme. Those have become normalized. So there's some bailouts in the '90s, an increasing number in the two thousands, big numbers in 07, 08, and so on on through there. And now the idea of bailouts, we don't really even argue about that anymore. It just happens you know billions and now trillions of dollars bail out anytime, and it's going to be totally a government government initiative so the the private business uh, side of it seems to have dropped away richards mentioning the executive orders the same trend line uh, over the course of 90s 2000s 2000, 2010 and so now you know some people are grumbling about the executive orders and so on but again it's normalized of course the president or the prime yeah the president comes in and just, you know, does whatever he wants. So we've gone away from entirely, even that mixed economy, third way interventionist model to the really the president is the chief executive uh, officer, not of the government, but of the whole economy. Now, we know, of course, in the person of Joe Biden, that he is not actually writing all of these executive orders. Right. Right. The That's true. So, right. Right behind him are thousands and thousands of right. government workers and unelected bureaucrats at various kinds of agencies and he is the uh, the mouthpiece and spokesman and the, and the moving pen for it so we now have an unelected bureaucracy running the show and we have normalized the government can basically do what it wants with the economy that's a big cultural shift over 25 years
0: um quick question i went ahead and put the link to the executive order in the Chat section of Zoom. Um, but Mark Shoup did ask if there's a particular section, since it is 16 pages, if you don't have this at the tip of your fingers, it's fine. He can dig through it. Um, but is particular section that reverses the consumer protection standard?
2: No, it's sprinkled. No, uh, that standard is sprinkled throughout, and there's mentions of it.
0: Got it. So really you need to kind of read through the whole thing to get the comprehensive understanding of of what this is all about, huh?
2: There's a shorter version called the fact sheet of the order. You You know the executive orders are getting too long when they have summary sheets of the executive orders, but you can look at that too. If you just search the internet for fact sheet on Biden executive order, that one's a little shorter. The first one's more legalese,
0: I'm sure it's shorter, but see, now I'm such a skeptic. I've taught summary long enough that I don't know that I even trust the fact sheets to summarize. Well, yeah. <laughs> so there's all. Always- by, by,
2: by the way, they, they borrowed something from Trump called the whole of government model. I don't know if you remember that phrase. First time I ever heard the phrase was from uh, Pence. So he put Pence in charge of the response to COVID. And Pence came out one day and said, we have a whole of government. That's what, W-H-O, not H-O. WHO whole of government. And the idea was every agency, all hands on deck, we're all gonna tell you what to do. We're gonna blanket the economy with this COVID reaction. And the Biden people use the same language. We're gonna use a whole of government approach to promote competition. Uh, so that alone, I mean, even the language of the totalitarian approach, whole government, but it's just called whole government. Maybe they should call it a wholesome government, but, but that's what they mean by whole government. They don't mean one or two agencies are gonna work on this. They mean that the, every possible agency and department you can find will be on the case.
0: Well, I hate to say this because we're already at the top of the hour. There have been questions, and this has happened in the past, that really are not on topic, and even questions about um, trying to reach Stephen or Richard. And definitely go to the Atlas Society website, www.atlassociety.org, and there's a contact link there. Yep. And if anybody has any ideas ideas of things that they really would like to hear about in one of these um, panels, send that out that will come directly to me and we can incorporate that in the future. And also I can forward any emails to either Stephen or Richard as appropriate as well. So um, please feel free to do that. I just wanted to mention that as well. But we have got to the top of the hour. So I think we probably need to wrap this up. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And again, I'm Vicky Odino. And if you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at that same um, website, atlassociety.org. And then also please turn in next week when Mustafa Akhul, who is the author of Reopening Muslim Minds or Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance will be our guest for the next episode of The Atlas Society Asks. And I hope everybody has a great rest of the day and a great rest of the week. And we'll see
2: Vicki, you. Vicki, okay. can, I, can I make one more plug, Vicki?
0: Absolutely. Go right
2: tomorrow, ahead. Tomorrow night at, oh, now I'm pretty sure it's 8 p.m. Eastern time. Another Morals and Markets on Big Tech. The discussion will be somewhat similar to the, the co- competition issue on big tech.
0: Absolutely, so that, and where can people um, find that?
2: So if you go to the Atlas Society website under events, it has morals and markets, which is a monthly uh, on Thursday nights.
0: Fantastic.
2: But pretty much under events, I think.
0: Okay, great, thank you.
2: Okay.
0: All right. And thank so you. Enjoy Freedom Fest and- yes.
2: um, Enjoy Freedom Fest, Steven. Will do, yes.
0: You also. Getting
2: back over as
1: soon as this is done. All right, thanks. That was (laughs) good good. content. Uh, Enjoyed it much.